Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, God's Covenants. The Bible is structured by a series of covenants, all of which are focused on and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The goal of these covenants is to create and redeem a people in whom God might dwell so that they will glorify and enjoy Him forever. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. We're going to uh, be looking today at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through chapter 2, verse 3, and also chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Uh, We're actually going to spend three weeks looking at these texts and talking about the covenant of creation. I was originally set and ready to go this morning with covering it all this morning, and then praying and wrestling, decided it was going to be two weeks, and then decided it was going to be three weeks. So it's going to end up being three weeks. We're going to look at these. Uh, It's just such a foundational text. So Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through chapter 2, verse 3, and then chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. You can follow along on the screen. I'll be using the New International Version. You can also follow along in your welcome booklet and uh, also, obviously, in your Bible. So Genesis chapter 1, hear now the words of your Creator and your Sovereign Lord. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. There was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, He rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And then in verse 15 of chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. The Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Okay, well, this morning we're going to begin with a test. So everybody get ready. I'm going to put a picture up. Who can tell me what that is? You guys are sharp. That's an acorn. Now I'm going to put up another picture. Who can tell me what that is? So actually, technically, I believe a blastocyst is what the term is. Is that correct, Lisa? Yeah, yeah, right on the tip of your tongue. I know. See? You are sharp, Sandy. This is actually a human being, right at the beginning of life. This is shortly, not not all that long after fertilization. 
Now, why do I bring up an acorn and this embryo? The reason is because even though they're so small and tiny and they don't look anything like what they're going to become, the basic information's there. An acorn has the genetics of the oak tree that it's going to be inside of it. And this cell, small though it is, you need a microscope to see it, has all the genetic information of the person is already there inside with them. Over time, it's going to become apparent to everyone. It's going to spread out. It's going to grow. And everyone's going to be able to see what was already encoded in there. Uh, but it's already there. Now, the reason I bring this up is here in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we're looking at the acorn and the embryo of the rest of Scripture. The rest of what God is going to be doing, all the rest of God's covenants with humanity are there like an acorn. They're there like an embryo in Genesis 1 and 2. And the rest of it is going to flow out from there. And we're going to see, actually, when we get to, to, to the end, when you get to Revelation 21 and 22, I'll talk about that today, but everything is back in sync with what was going on in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. And just as the acorn doesn't become a different thing, the, the oak tree comes from the acorn, the human being is there in that seed right at the beginning so too God doesn't stop and start with his covenant plans. God has one overarching covenant that he is accomplishing from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. So we are actually going to take three weeks to unpack this because it takes a while for an acorn to grow into an oak tree. And you need to understand, if you're going to understand where you're going, you ought to take time to study right at the beginning. So we're going to take three weeks to unpack this and actually you could spend a lot more. And we will also, I'm not even going to be covering, there are some people who want to look at this and say, well, is this really a covenant? And I'm actually, I don't even have time to deal with that. I'm going to deal with that in after hours. If you check out the video that will pop out on Tuesday, you can look and I will go through five different reasons why it is clear this is a covenant that God is making with humanity and the rest of the covenants grow like the tree out of that acorn from this one. So let's dive in and talk about the covenant of creation. Now the the basic thing that is going on here in this covenant is we are learning about humanity and who we are. And the first thing we see is humanity is the, the image of God as, and is in a special relationship with God. So notice there in verses 26 and 27, God says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And then he describes what we're going to do. And in verse 27, we're told that God actually does what he had set out to do. And only humanity is referred to as the image of God in Scripture. Angels are bigger and mightier than we are. They have never fallen, but they are never referred to as the image of God. Only human beings are referred to as the image of God. And notice in the text, God does not say, let us make man and then they will grow into our image. Let us make man and they will strive and perhaps they will become our image. God says, no, when I make humanity, in their very essence, they are my image. There is something about you and I. That picture I had up there just a moment ago of that fertilized egg, it's already the image of God. It's not, it's not growing into it. It's not going to become it later. It already is the very image of God because to be human 
is to be the image of God. Whatever else we may say about us, it is to be the image of God. And this is so important. Notice that it's repeated, and it's repeated a couple of ways. In Hebrew, they like to use what's referred to as parallelism, where you say the same thing twice. You, you might change it just a little bit, but you're getting the same idea out. So notice words, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. This is a parallelism. It's a, I, I'm restating the same thing. There's something about human beings that is like us, the Trinity is saying, in a way that is distinct from everything else. And then it's repeated again in verse 27, where God has not only stated what he's going to do, he actually does it. In the rest of the creation account, God just speaks and it happens. Here alone, God declares what he's going to do before he does it. Because in that repetition, there is an emphasis that God is saying this aspect of being the image of God is what is central, what is essential about humanity. Whatever else you might say about humanity, what is at the core of what it means to be human is that they are the image of God. And it's not only that, there's something that's a little bit interesting. When you read this in the Hebrew, these verses are set out in poetry. And many of your English translations will have that. Now that's important because the rest of the chapter, while it's very highly literary and stylized, it's not poetry, it's prose. But here, God sets this out in poetry, and he does this for a reason. He's saying, slow down, pay attention. This is what the whole rest of it's really been about. The other stuff has been a build-up to this point. What is central and what I am doing in the cosmos is wrapped up in humanity. They are the image of God, and they are important in this story that I am unfolding. And so God puts it out in poetry to get us to slow down and look at it. So this is the first thing. Humanity is the image of God and is therefore in a very special relationship with God. However, there's another thing that comes out in this text, which is while that is our glory, that we are the image of God, there is a restriction, and that is that we are placed under covenant obligations to God. We are like God, but we are not God. We are, as we're going to see, given great dignity and actually authority, but we are always under God and accountable to God. So notice here in chapter 1, of course, if we've read it, God is the creator of everything. He creates, the, the theological term is ex nihilo, out of nothing. God didn't find stuff that was already there and start doing it. There was nothing there as stuff. God makes matter and then forms and shapes matter. He creates everything and he speaks commands to everything that must be obeyed. When he says, let there be light, there is light. When he says, let the sea team with fish, the sea teams with fish. Let the birds you know, come out and be in the air. This is what happens. Everything obeys the command of God. And then God comes to humanity and he says, let's slow down. This is going to be somebody in my image. But notice immediately he then speaks a command to us. Because even though we are the image bearers of God, we are under covenant obligations. So in verse 28, God blesses the humans and says to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and, and the rest of creation. So God not only commands us to be fruitful like he does with everything else he's created. He's repeated that command over and over again to be fruitful and to multiply, to grow. Um, 
But God here says, you are to rule over creation. This has been said to nothing else. Again, we are distinct. We are given rule over creation, and we'll talk about what that means in just a moment. But notice here, this is not a choice. God doesn't say, well, decide what you want to do. This is a command. This is what you are to do. Furthermore, when we break down into chapter 2, chapter 2 tells the same story, but it kind of slows everything down, and it looks at it from a little bit different angle. And so when we get to chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, which we looked at uh, as part of our text, notice we're told that God takes the man, he puts him in the garden to work it and take care of it. And God commands the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but there's one tree I'm telling you, you may not eat from. And if you eat from it, you are going to die. Uh, And actually, I I love the the, the way Hebrew actually works. It doesn't say you will certainly die. It says dying you will die. That's the way in Hebrew that you say this is absolutely going to happen. If you say ruling you're going to rule, it means you're absolutely going to be in charge. Here God says, I'm telling you, You eat from this tree, take it to the bank. You will die on that day. So God is speaking as the covenant Lord. And so notice in verses 15 to 17, once again, we are put over the garden. We we are to, to work it. We are to take care of it. We have this responsibility that was there in chapter one, but we are given limits. God says you have great authority, but... You are under my authority, and I restrict. There's this one tree you are not to touch. So our place in creation, what it means to be human, is this dichotomy. First, we occupy a special place in God's creation as his image bearers, and we have authority over the rest of creation. However, on the other hand, if I can do my Tevya imitation here from Fiddler on the Roof, on the other hand... We are under God's authority, and we have covenant obligations that we owe to him as our covenant Lord, and we will answer to him. Both of those are true. Remove or reduce either one of those, and you've distorted what it means to be human. Both of those are central to what it means. Now, what we'll do for the next three weeks, that's kind of the backdrop, is I'm going to break out three aspects that God gives us of our responsibilities in this covenant creation. One set of them is to creation, which is what we'll look at today. Another set is to our fellow humans, which we will look at next week. And then the third set is our direct relationship to God and what that looks like. So that's what we'll be doing. So today we're going to talk about our covenant responsibilities to creation. Now the first thing we are told is we have a covenant responsibility to rule creation. So notice in verse 28... And then again, in chapter 2, verse 15, there are three different Hebrew words that are used to tell us what we're supposed to do. We are told that we are to subdue the creation. Secondly, we are to rule the creation. And thirdly, we are to work the creation. Subdue, rule, and work. And I'm going to talk about what each of these means because they're very, very important to understand it. The first word, subdue, is a word of power. All of these are fairly common words. This word is kavash. When I read it, I thought of you, if you've ever heard the phrase down south, you say, put the kavash on something. 
That's what this word sounds like. It's kavash, or, and it means to actually subdue something, to bring it under control. It's used, for example, with David. In 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 11, we read that King David dedicated these articles to the Lord as he had done with the silver and gold from all the nations he had subdued. Same word. In other words, they, they didn't want to do this. They didn't have any choice. David had power, and he exerted that power to make them do what they were supposed to do. Another place it's used is in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 34, and it's used in two different verses, verse 11 and verse 16. And what had happened in Jeremiah 34, Jeremiah is bringing a great word of judgment against the rulers because they knew they were in trouble. So they said, we're supposed to have set the slaves free. So we make a covenant with God that we're going to set the slaves free. And they, they made this promise, but then we're told in verse 11, afterwards they changed their mind and they took back the slaves they had freed and enslaved them again. The word enslaved is the word subdued. And you get the idea. You recognize the slaves didn't want to go back to being slaves. They had been freed, but they were forced back into their slavery. And then down in verse 16, God is very upset. He is speaking a word of judgment about what they have done. He says, now you've turned around and profaned my name. Each of you has taken back the male and female slaves you had set free to go where they wished. You have forced them to become your slaves again. Same word. You have subdued them. So this word is a strong word. It speaks of the strength that may be used to make something comply. And that's the first thing God says to humanity. You are to subdue the earth. Second word is you are to rule the creation. This is a word of kingship. It is usually used to speak of what the king does. In particular, we see it numerous times with the Messiah. So, for example, in Psalm 72, 8, a prophecy about Solomon standing in as a picture of the Messiah and ultimately of the Messiah we're told he will rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. God's promise to the Messiah is that he will rule over everything. Same word for what we are told to do with creation. You are to subdue it and you are to rule over it. Another place it's used is in Psalm 110, which is the messianic psalm that is quoted the most in the New Testament. It's the one that begins, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then we're told in verse 2, the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion and you will rule in the midst of your enemies. You will exercise kingly authority over your enemies. So this word, again, has got a very strong flavor. It speaks of rulership that can make something comply, but it's a kingly word. And so what this means is humanity is uh, to be kings over creation, subduing creation and ruling it in a way that it will serve God. Third word is to work. This is a very, very common word. It's the normal word that's used uh, as a, it's a word of labor is what it's used for. So for example, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 9, six days you shall labor and do all your work. And the word labor there is actually the same exact word that's translated. Adam was to work the garden, work the soil, okay? 
the, the word work up here is a different Hebrew word in this case. The word labor is the same word that is used. Uh, it's, it's a word avad is what it is. And the first five times it's used in the early chapters of Genesis, every time it means to work the soil, to till it, to be a farmer, to get down and plow the ground and make the ground produce crops. The noun form of the word is the word for servant or slave, like the people that they had set free in Jeremiah, the slaves. It's the same word. It's just the noun form of this word. And interestingly enough, however, the word is also used for the word worship. It's used for the word worship. So, for example, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 23, God is speaking to Pharaoh, and God says, I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. Now, this sounds odd to us, doesn't it? Because it's like it's a word that means work, but the idea is it can mean work, it can mean to serve. Well, what do we oftentimes call our gatherings on Sunday morning? A worship service. That's where we got the idea from is all the way back here. The word means to serve by worshiping. In fact, interestingly enough, the word is used in numbers a lot to refer to the work of the priest down at the tabernacle or the temple. So in Numbers chapter 3, verse 7, you can see they, the priest, are to perform duties for him and for the whole community at the tent of meeting by doing the work of the tabernacle. Doing is the verb. It's the same thing where it says that he is to work the ground Exact same form of the word is used here. It's the verb to, to do it. And the work, the word work there is the noun form, the same one that can be servant or slave. Okay? It's used this way 82 times in the book of Numbers. When, the, when God talks about what the priests do, it's this same word. Now, why I bring this up is not so that you all can know little interesting facts about the Hebrew language, but God's painting a picture. Adam is in the garden and Adam's a king. Adam's also in the garden, and he's doing the work, just like the priests are later going to do. He's to do the priestly work of worship as he labors in creation, and he's to lead it to the praise of God. Okay? They pick certain words that are going to carry meanings forward later. Adam's working as a king and a priest in the garden. That's his call. And he has the authority to accomplish this. Now, that's what some people would stress, but there's a fourth word, and that word balances the other three. That word's in Genesis 2.15 where it says he's to put him in the garden to work it and to take care of it. And the phrase take care of is just one word in Hebrew, and it's a very common word a word called shamar, which means to guard something, to watch it, to keep it, like even us keeping the commandments is the same word, or to protect something. So for example, in Exodus chapter 22, we're told, if a man gives his neighbor silver or goods for safe keeping, same word. Verse 10, if a man gives a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any other animal's neighbor for safe keeping. So let's 
ask you a question. If I gave you a car, and I even told you, hey, I'm going to be going out of town for a while. I'm going to give you my car. I want you to take care of it. You can use it, but take care of my car for me. How would you treat my car? Would you, would you trash it? Hopefully, if you're a responsible human being, the answer to that is no. You're going to probably even take better care of it than you do your own vehicle because you realize it's not mine. It's somebody else's. That's the word that's used here. This is what Adam's to do with the garden. Other places that it's used. Anybody ever heard these words? May the Lord bless you and keep you. Same word. What are, what are we asking God to do when we pronounce that benediction of Aaron, that blessing of Aaron? It means God is, we're saying, God, may God guard you, watch over you, protect you, like the apple of his eye. This is what God tells Adam he's to do with creation. Another place it's used, Psalm 121, is a whole psalm about how God protects us. And in verses 3 to 5, it uses this phrase three times, this word three times. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. Same word. See, what he's saying is God's got his eye on you. God is protecting you. You are okay. You are going to be safe because God is here to guard, protect, keep. You are, you are special to God. And this is what God tells Adam he is to do in the garden. So we are to protect and care for creation as God cares for and protects us, or as we would protect the valuable, some treasure that a friend gave to us for safekeeping. It's what we're to do. So this word's a strong balance to the others. But what's interesting is how the word is also used. Because Adam's to be a priest and a king. He's also to guard, to protect. This word can mean, in other words, not only that I'm protecting you, but if somebody else comes to try and harm you and I'm guarding you, what am I going to do to them? So I'm going to stop them. And I'm going to use whatever force is necessary. If I have to drive them away, I will guard you by banishing them. Now we can see that the word used this way because here's the first two times it's used in the Bible. God puts Adam in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it, to shamar it, to guard it, to protect it. The next time it's used is when Adam has failed and he is driven out of the garden and God puts cherubim and a flaming sword to guard the garden from Adam who's been driven out. Adam is put there and to protect it means not only treating it nicely, but to prevent anyone else from coming in and doing anything that ought not to be done, like perhaps a serpent coming in to the garden to undermine what's to be done. And of course, if you know the story, when the serpent comes in, because remember in Genesis chapter 2, we know that God gives this command to Adam before Eve is there. Eve hears it from Adam. Adam heard it from God. And in Genesis 3, the serpent comes up and he is undermining everything God has said. And what should Adam be doing? The sword should be out. And he should be driving 
out of the garden that which is there to defile. But the priest king is not doing his job. And so, the next time the word is used, he's now been driven out of the garden. And because he did not guard the garden, the garden must be guarded from him, protected from him. And if you think about it the same way, he's supposed to make the ground serve him. He's supposed to work it. But if he doesn't, what happens in the curse? If you don't make the ground serve you, you will serve the ground. If you don't rule the creation, the creation will rule you. This is the nature of covenant. If you violate it, it comes back upon you. So as priests, kings, humanity has a call to guard and protect what God has given us from anything that would try to harm or seduce it. And so there's a balance here. Notice, just like we saw in the nature of humanity, there's a balance. We have been given authority over creation to have it serve us. And creation will thrive best when we're not letting it lie fallow, when we're not just leaving it in its pristine state, but rather we are to work and develop it to bring out its God-given potential. Now these are the balances because there are people today who look and say what would be best for creation is if the blight of humanity was removed there's a word for that it's foolishness creation is best when we are here in fact if you read in genesis chapter 2 we're told that the ground is not productive the ground is not accomplishing what god wants because there is no man there yet to work the ground to to make it productive and so those who think that creation is best when it's just left pristine and humans don't touch it are wrong they're they're simply saying it's either they're wrong or god's wrong because the two are in complete disagreement with one another but the second part of this is there are then those who hear that and say well creation's nothing but raw material and i can brutalize it and treat it however i want no you may not And Christians have been guilty sometimes of doing this. And we think that we have the freedom to do whatever we want with creation. And this is actually one of the things that came out of the Enlightenment. This is just stuff out there for us to manipulate and make do what we want. It's not just stuff out there. It's something that God loves. That God has pronounced very good and for which God is going to hold us accountable. And if you want to know how accountable he holds us, remember the Sabbath laws. What's interesting is, on the Sabbath, it's not only that I couldn't work, was I allowed to let my animals work. I had to let them rest. Think about that. God says, I'm going to boil my whole law down to ten. And one of them includes a statement, you can't let your donkey work. Because God says, I care about your donkey. And in fact, he goes on and says, every seven years, what do I have to do with the land? Have to let it work. And if you read in the Old Testament, you discover that for 490 years, Israel was in the land. 490 divided by seven means there were supposed to be 70 Sabbath years. They never did a one. And God said, okay, you did not let let the land rest. Therefore, I'm going to send you into exile for how long did they go into exile for? 70 years. You didn't let the land rest, I'm going to let the land rest. Because remember, the land's mine. It's not yours. I own it. I care for it. So 
If on either hand, we follow those who think that humanity's a blight, we're off. But friends, if we, see, and when I was a young guy, I very much was into dominion and in those tree huggers over there. Okay, can I tell you, apparently God might be a tree hugger. And if you don't like that, maybe you need to step back and look. God cares how we treat creation. And it's right there in the original covenant. There is balance. And the danger is the ditch on either side. And we have to be careful and watch that. And it guards against the two great errors in our relationship to creation. Consider this. When God tells us not to make images and idols, what do we usually make the idols look like? Birds and animals and, and, and the sun and the moon and the stars. So we're supposed to be priest kings over creation. We're supposed to lead creation into worship to God. And when we get out of kilter, what do we end up doing with creation? Worshiping the very thing that we're supposed to lead into worshiping God. And so we start to, to do that. And, and then what people end up thinking is, well, humanity is actually a blight and a problem. And we, we worship the creation. That is a ditch. On the other side, there's another ditch, which is, again, we, create, we treat the creation as a raw material that we can do whatever because we are lords and it's ours. Except for it's not ours. It belongs to God. And again, if I loan you my car and you treat it like it's yours and I get it back and it's a rolling wreck, you and I are probably going to have a come-to-Jesus conversation at the end of this, okay? And you certainly will not be getting my car back again, okay? And, and that would only be reasonable. You should do the same thing with me. And God says that's exactly what I've done with you. And there are limits to what we can do. One of the big things in this creation story, and I won't have a lot of time to develop this, but do you realize when God does Sabbath and he rested on the seventh day, how many of you realize God was not like, man, I am winded. I'm just worn out here. Why does God stop on the seventh day? Because it's enough. I've done enough. There are limits that run throughout this story, and wisdom accepts limits. And there is an attitude in creation that goes the opposite of worshiping it that doesn't recognize limits. And we think we can do anything we want with it. That, that, that goes back to what the problem was in the garden. God gave us one limit, and we beat a path to the tree and broke that limit. And we've been doing that in our relationship with creation ever since. So there's this balance that is there, and we need to be aware of both. So how do we apply this? Because most of us don't run the EPA or something like that. So, so what's this going to mean for you and me tomorrow? Two things. One of them is a little bit more philosophical. Do I first understand that creation matters? God likes creation. Understand, this was revolutionary. Everybody else at the time thought the whole goal of death was getting out of matter. Everybody else believed. See, Christians believe in the resurrection of the body because God likes this stuff. He made it. Okay? You and I remember our dirt. 
He likes the stuff so much, he said, when I want to make my image, I'm going to scoop up some of that stuff. And I'm going to put me into that. God likes creation. And any idea that is against that is a pagan idea, friends. It is not biblical. God says it's good. It's good. It's good. All the way till it is very good. I like creation. Do we understand that's the way God appears? God has commanded us to develop and to care for creation. He wants us to bring out its potential. Part of when God stops, it doesn't mean that everything's as far as it could have been, but God's saying, that's good enough, and I'm going to give it to you, and I want you to, to uncover it. I want you to find it. It's kind of like, you know, Easter eggs, when we do that with our kids, right? And they all run around. There's a joy there as they find things. God's saying, I've hidden Easter eggs, as it were, all throughout creation. I, having worked with computers a few years ago, I wonder how much God laughed that for thousands of years we were walking on sand having no idea that we could, we could melt it and make silicon wafers out of it and all the stuff that it could do for us. We've had no idea of the potential that was there in creation. But that's what God has called us to do. And so God's law contains commands for how we must treat animals in the land. And so to not care for them is sin. It is sin when we do that. And we need to understand that as believers, particularly as evangelicals. And part of our rebellion as human beings is to destroy creation. This is what we do. Revelation eleven eighteen. This is when the whole war is going on in the book of Revelation, okay? Notice this phrase. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who do what? What a strange thing. They're in Revelation. God says, you want to know who my enemies are? It's those who destroy the earth. That's not a message we hear very often, particularly because maybe people of a different political persuasion, we think that they're too tree-hugging or whatever. God says the time's come to destroy those who destroy the earth. We of all people should care for creation. Our God made it. And so, and consider as you go through the whole biblical story, you get to the end, and it's not nirvana. It's not that we exist in nothingness. What do we get to the very end in Revelation 21 and 22? What do we see coming down? A new heavens and a new earth. And there's incredible continuity. In fact, in the middle of the new Jerusalem, there is a garden, and there's river in the garden just like in Genesis 1 and 2. And, and there at the river, there is the tree of life, right back from the beginning of the story. It's almost like the end is telling us we're back at the beginning. Isn't that amazing? Right where God said, I made creation, I like it. And in fact, if you, if you look, friends, we, we ought to understand this. Jesus' work is redemptive even towards creation even towards creation. Read Colossians chapter 1. Uh, uh, what I'm getting at here is, how many of you have ever heard the phrase, I, we used to say this, I, I used to say this all the time, these are things I have to repent of, but it's all going to burn. It's all going to burn. None of this stuff, it doesn't matter. 
The rest of this stuff, man, the only thing that's going to survive is the word of God and the souls of men. The rest of it's going to burn. Profoundly pagan. Profoundly unbiblical. That is not the biblical message. The biblical message is, no, Jesus is going to reconcile it all. And God wants us to love and care for creation just like he does. And it's part of our call. I want you to notice at the end, Jesus fulfills this call showing it has continuing validity. In Hebrews chapter 2, beginning of verse 5, we read, it's not to angels that he has subjected the world to come. An interesting phrase. He's saying that this call for us to subject the earth continues into the new heavens and the new earth about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and you put everything under his feet. This is Psalm 8 that he's quoting here. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we don't see everything subject to him. He's saying, this is what God has said, but we're looking around and we don't see humanity fulfilling this call. If you are biblical thinking, you should know what the next point is. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so by that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Do you see what he's saying? Jesus came, and part of his redemptive work is he's the second Adam. And what Adam was called to do, to be a priest king in the creation, Jesus is doing. And it is part of his redemptive work. And that is what he's going to do. God has never forgotten. He didn't say, geez, I had this whole plan for humanity to do this, and then it got messed up in Genesis 3. I guess I'll go with plan B. God does not do plan B, friends. He does plan A. You and I need plan B because we can't execute plan A. God can execute plan A, and he does. And so when Jesus comes, the Father says, second Adam, and he's going to do what first Adam failed to do. You were called to be priest king. You were called to lead this creation. You were called to love and work and bring out its potential and to care for it and to rule it and to, to guard it and watch over it, and that's what second Adam does. That's what the writer to Hebrews is telling us. So, see, we're at war with creation, but Jesus is not. And he's doing it in our stead. So that's the first part. Do I understand that? Second part will be brief, and then I'll close with prayer. Do I see that my work is part of God's covenant? God is not just interested in what you do on Sunday morning between 10 and 11.30. God's covenant is interested 24-7. 168 a week, 28 to 31 days a month, depending on what month we're in, 365 a year or 366 if it's a leap year. Every moment of every day, God's covenant covers it, and he is interested in what you are doing. Do you notice here, he calls Adam to work, and somebody help me, is this before or after the fall? Before. So I have bad news. If you think your job is part of the curse... It's not. It was here before it. Some of your jobs might be part of the curse, but more than likely it's the way I perform my job is part of the curse. 
God is interesting. You were made in the image of a working God. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. He's the God who makes, the God who creates, the God who works, and you are in his image. You were made to be a worker, and so was I. And friends, that means it's part of God's image in you, and what you do tomorrow matters. Whatever that task is, it is, it is important to God. The call to be a missionary is no more sacred, no more part of God's covenant than the call to be a scientist, a doctor, a lawyer, a farmer, a secretary, a police officer, a parent who stays home and takes care of kids, or a grandparent who's taking care of the kids. All of that is part of God's covenant. And if we do it to the glory of God, he says, I am pleased with what you do. I did not come into God's covenant 26 years and a month ago when I became a pastor. I was under God's covenant when I was writing computer code, I was under God's covenant when I was a manager. I was under God's covenant when I was a Marine. All of that was God's covenant call for me. And I have other callings. My calling to be a husband and a father and a neighbor and to work in the community. All of those are part of God's covenant. Work, notice, remember that word work also means worship. Let my son go so that he can worship me. Now, this is a special sense of worship, what we do on Sunday, and it's important. But it does not stop here. If you and I consciously tomorrow say, oh, Lord God, let the, the thoughts of my mind, the words of my mouth, and the works of my hand be worship unto you, they are. And in fact, what we do then, see, we, we've lost the sign because, you know, we, we give money, or if you're like me, I've done it online to give. But what that actually represents is the sweat of my brow. It's just like when I worked the ground and I brought food to God. And I said, this is, not that God needs food, it's my recognition that everything I have comes from you. My work is worship. So ask yourself these questions to think if, if I see that my work is part of the covenant. Do I think God's as interested in my work and other callings as he is in my church life? Is God as interested in the other things? Because, friend, I want to assure you he is. One of the things that grieves me, I watch pastors sacrifice their family for the church. It's a failing. It's a deep flaw that afflicts the church. And it's because we don't understand. We think this is God's call. That is what we've kind of got to get through until we get to heaven. No. Do I recognize that? Do I approach my work and my other callings in life as worship and service to God? Or just a burden? When you, when you wake up tomorrow, let's be honest, we're, we're going to hit that fork in the road and we're going to go one way or the other. This is a burden or this is worship to Jesus Christ. Whatever that is. Might be changing diapers, might be being a police officer, might be running a corporation. Do I approach it 
as worship to God. And last way of thinking through this question, do I regularly and consciously commit my work to God in prayer? Okay, see, now, when I come in tomorrow, I'm going to go right over there to that office, and I'm going to open up the Word of God, and I hope you know I regularly, consciously commit that to Jesus. Okay, hopefully, so I don't come in here and say stupid stuff on Sunday. It is, <laughs> amen, that's what we are praying for. Or at least I'll say less stupid stuff. Do you do the same thing? Because if it sounds strange at all, I see you need to be honest with yourself. Okay, don't get religious with yourself. To whatever extent, I think committing that to Jesus that I'm out driving a truck, that's a sign that I've got this dichotomy in life. And I don't think the covenant of creation covers all of life. What God's really interested in is the little bit I do on Sunday. And that's a failure, friends. God is after all of life. Every bit of it matters. Everything you and I do matters. But if we understand that, that is liberating. It means we can serve God everywhere you go. Everything. You will not go anywhere that God's kingdom does not extend. This is back to the Abraham Kuyper. There is not one square inch that Jesus Christ does not say, mine. And he's extending that through you and through me and what we do. So do we recognize that? What we're going to do is we're going to stand together, and I'm going to conclude with a word of prayer. And I want to encourage you to Join in, pray along, and let's commit ourselves to God in this covenant of creation. Hallelujah. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. How many are your works, O Lord, and in wisdom you have made them all. For you are the creator of all things, both great and small. When we consider your creation, O Lord, so vast, spacious, complex, and glorious beyond our comprehension, we are stunned. Who are we? We are made of dust, we are frail, and we seem so small and insignificant. Yet, we are made in your image. And we have been made rulers over this vast creation. We have been called to rule as kings over your creation, developing its full potential for your glory, harnessing its abilities for the good of humanity, protecting and caring for it as a treasure from your hands entrusted to us. Lord, we confess that we have often failed at this call. And our actions have brought conflict into this creation. We seem to be intent on destroying creation rather than protecting it, treating it as mere raw material for our ever-wandering desires rather than a gift that we should treasure and steward and protect. And Lord, when we consider this, it would leave us without hope.
but we see Jesus, the firstborn over all creation, who created all things, who sustains all things, and through whom all things will be reconciled to you. And because of this, O Lord, we have hope, for your covenant stands firm, even through our disobedience, and your good purposes will be done until we dwell in the new heavens and the new earth, the fulfillment of your every design. So Lord, we ask today that you would send us forth as your covenant agents in the earth. Father, whatever we do this week, may our labors be pleasing to you. May they treat creation properly, and may they be a benefit to those you have made in your image. Lord, we ask all of this in the name of Jesus, who has kept the covenant of creation for us and who now rules the second Adam as Lord over your creation. We ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. I encourage you now to receive God's word of blessing and benediction. This is out of Psalm 90. May God reveal himself to you and to your children, and may the favor of the Lord our God rest upon you, and may he establish all the work of your hands. May he bless you so that you may be a blessing. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.